0: Hey, if you're invested in the Las Vegas mayoral race, and really we should all be, you're going to want to check out the Nevada Independent Mayoral Forum on Wednesday, May 15th at the Fountain Blue. The Indy CEO, John Ralston, will be moderating a live panel with the three frontrunners. You know, it could get spicy, so don't miss it. Tickets are available at thenevadaindependent.com events. And as a bonus for CityCast Las Vegas members, we've got two pairs of tickets we're giving away tonight. So make sure to join at membership.citycast.fm if you haven't already.
1: Can you imagine a Las Vegas without alcohol? Well, on this day in 1920, prohibition started. And since it ended, alcohol and Vegas go hand in hand. So this week on CityCast Las Vegas, it's booze week. From sober living to the best happy hours, we got you covered. Today, I sit down with the Mob Museum's prohibition expert, Claire White, to learn about what Vegas was up to 100 years ago and the rise of speakeasies. It's Tuesday, January 17th, 2023. I'm Vogue Robinson, and this is CityCast Las Vegas. We're hanging out here in the swanky mob museum speakeasy called The Underground, and we're hanging with Director of Education, Claire White. Claire White, thank you for being on CityCast Las Vegas. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Me too. These couches, mm-hmm, nice and cushiony, <laughs> the sexy burgundy feel too. Um, so I'd love to talk to you about Prohibition. What was happening in Las Vegas when Prohibition began 103 years ago today?
0: So Las Vegas in 1920 was still a pretty small town. And where we are today in downtown Las Vegas is pretty much it, like this is all we had in the city. And in fact, where the Mob Museum is located, which is the original federal courthouse and post office, which was constructed in the 1930s and completed in 1933, this was kind of the outskirts of town. So where we are right now is actually in the 1920s. uh, It was still the county fairgrounds. And then this is kind of an interesting part of town because right across the street was pretty much the majority of the black community. Um, And so there's a rich history there. And then sort of west little bit north of that was our vice district. So that's where all the brothels, all the speakeasies were located during prohibition. So downtown Las Vegas has an incredible prohibition history, even though we were still a pretty small town. Nevada actually passes a statewide prohibition law in 1917. And that is surprising to a lot of people only because it's Nevada. And especially if I've already started talking to them about how we behave during Prohibition, it seems kind of counterintuitive. But the thing to keep in mind is that, you know, Nevada in the 1910s, Las Vegas accounted for like none of the population. Reno is still the biggest city at that point. Uh, We have tons of big mining cities around the uh, state. Virginia City is still in existence. We got all these mining towns that are now ghost towns in Southern Nevada. And um, a lot of the people who were voting and were in power tended to be a little more religious than your average Las Vegan, And, you know, that kind of runs the gamut. I mean, we had Catholics here, we had Mormons here, and we had a lot of people who mostly wanted to punish the mining districts. The, you know, mining districts were disproportionately male, tended to get a little rowdy, a lot of violence, a lot of issues. And so the, the average voter who voted for statewide prohibition was kind of trying to punish those individuals more than they were trying to punish anyone else. By 1920, Nevada is already like, oh, this isn't really working. Like, this is, we, we don't really like this. <laughs> uh, the Federal Act, like, has just gone into effect, and Nevadans already are starting to push to overturn the statewide law. So in 1923, we abolish the statewide prohibition, but we still technically have to adhere to the federal law. What were the speakeasies in Las Vegas like? You know, I think probably a lot of people will be a little disappointed to hear this, but Speakeasies in Las Vegas, by and large, weren't all that fancy because our (laughs) town wasn't all that fancy. Mm -hmm. I mentioned the Arizona Club, which in a lot of ways was probably the nicest building, but even that building had sawdust on the floors. (laughs) Uh, You know, it had this gorgeous 40-foot mahogany bar, um, and we actually have it sort of recreated up in one of our exhibits here at the museum. Cool. But even with that, like it was... Today, it would look more like a cowboy bar <laughs> than it would our underground speakeasy, which is a lot more in the style of like Harlem's Cotton Club or other, you know, really upscale big city establishment.
1: Did speakeasy subculture develop in those years like it did on the East Coast? Like, I mean, were there, did we have bathtub gin parties and
0: flappers? So, Las Vegas didn't have sort of the same cosmopolitan flair that you would have found in New York or Chicago, but flapper dress, jazz music, all that sort of stuff definitely made it out west. And we definitely held our own when it came to liquor. One of the big saloons that existed before Prohibition that totally operated as a speakeasy all 13 years. <laughs> um, well, they got raided a couple times, but you know, as soon as they be allowed to reopen there they'd be serving alcohol again okay. and they actually were known for what is kind of a bougie cocktail the slow gin fizz mm. and it's made with it's gin infused with slow berries uh, s l o okay. e which isn't something that you can get just anywhere in the world or in the country and so the fact that we had sort of this this small little town and it's you know this little railroad saloon and get their <laughs> Still serving slow gen physics is is a good indication of, of the fact that we 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 held our own. Yes, I like that and dedicated too. <laughs> the mob and organized crime are the ones who make the most money off of bootlegging and, and speakeasies, but they are not the only ones running these operations. A great example actually is here in Las Vegas, because in the 1920s, we don't really have organized crime yet. We have we have guys here and there. One of them is actually a man named Jim Ferguson, who in the 1920s becomes known like as the king of bootleggers in Las Vegas. But he himself is not this big name mobster. He's not Al Capone. He's not Bugsy Siegel. He is one guy who with his wife and a few other people and maybe the mayor who he may or may not have bribed (laughs) and the police chief who also was once arrested for taking bribes and then didn't actually get charged with anything. He's kind of it. Like he's our top guy and he is Al Capone, he is not. Like, Bugsy Siegel, he is not. So you definitely see people who are not mobsters who are making money. And even in big cities, like even in New York, yes, there are these mobsters who are operating in Manhattan, Brooklyn, Harlem, you know, whatever community you're talking about. But you also have... Women and essentially families who are running these speakeasies. Here in Las Vegas, a woman named Mamie Stalker, she and her family ran what was the Northern Club on Fremont Street, and it was a cafe, and she had illegal liquor and illegal casinos throughout all of the 1920s into the 1930s. And in fact, when gambling is is legalized in Nevada in 1931, she is the first person to get a legal gambling license for the city of Las Vegas. And yet, to our knowledge, she's still also selling illegal liquor. So (laughs) she's got to maintain the business. Okay, (laughs) I love that.
2: Hey, it's David Figler, and one of my favorite food festivals is coming back to town. It's Vegas Unstripped over at the Palms Hotel on Saturday, May 18th. Over two dozen chefs from some of Las Vegas' most talked-about restaurants creating original, unique menu items they've never made before. Chef creativity at its best. We're talking chefs from Partage, Esther's Kitchen, Milpa, EDO, and more, including this year's James Beard Award finalist, Steve
0: What social function did speakeasies play? Las Vegans and Nevadans in general really didn't take to Prohibition. <laughs> you <They> don't say. <laughs> I'm sure that's shocking. But because of that, you know, speakeasies really did serve sort of a, a vital niche in the in the social realm as far as giving people things to do in the evenings. And not just here in Nevada, but sort of nationwide, one thing that speakeasies really did bring to the United States was dating culture. So before the 1920s, men and women don't really go on dates. Like you might go on a chaperoned evening, maybe with siblings or, you know, your parents may set you up with someone and say, okay, we'll go because we want you to spend time alone with them. But you weren't going like, hey, let's go out to the movie theater. Hey, let's go out for a bite to eat. Mm-hmm. Um, and speakeasies sort of provided that opportunity for men and women to meet each other on on pretty neutral grounds and then say, hey, let's do this again. <laughs>
1: Oh my gosh. I would have never thought that. But of course now my brain just goes to Bridgerton. (laughs) It's like, there's, there's a process for this. So it's for dating. Okay. And what were the defining qualities of a speakeasy in Vegas?
0: Well, I, you know, a speakeasy in general, like really all you needed to do was uh, serve illegal liquor and do it in a social atmosphere. I think people truly are often a little surprised um, because they do. They come into our speakeasy and they see other modern speakeasies around town or, or wherever they are, they're from. And they do tend to be pretty fancy, pretty classy today. And that's just not necessarily the the case in the 1920s. They really did run the gamut. There were speakeasies tucked behind like candy stores in like in private homes in their basements and attics. And so there's not sort of one model, but of course the major thing is that you're, you're providing mixed cocktails with bootleg liquor. Uh So Cocktails become popular because of terrible alcohol. (laughs) (laughs) Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. The type of cocktails, like the bee's knees is a great example. That is something 100% that would have been uh, not even just in upscale speakeasies, but across the United States, you would have seen cocktails like that. And the reason why is they needed to add a little sweetness and a little like citrus acid, something like that, to make homemade rot gut like 100 proof 150 proof moonshine taste decent <laughs> we are now making these cocktails with you know very if not top shelf liquors definitely very high quality liquors but that was not the case like this was definitely a, a mask job this is definitely like a <laughs> lipstick on a pig kind of situation But if you could afford it, 100% people still wanted imported stuff. If if you had the money... Almost anyone is going to still pick to get that Caribbean rum, that scotch from Scotland, that French champagne. And mobsters were the ones who were oftentimes bringing that in. Frank Costello and Charles Lucky Luciano and Meyer Lansky, who were all huge, big name New York mobsters, they all got their start in organized crime, essentially smuggling in like scotch and champagne and rum and all of that.
1: Oh, look, hello, bartender just walked in. Hello, I hope you don't mind. I have our strawberry bees' knees, our take on a classic prohibition cocktail, and our bathtub fizz, our signature drink. Oh my gosh. Isn't it cute? It's in an actual little white bathtub. Enjoy. (laughs) Thank you so much. Thank you. Uh, The bartender just walked in and brought us our beverages. So we brought uh, one is in kind of like a cocktail glass with uh, strawberries and it's the bee's knees. And that piece is kind of like you guys' take on that that classic drink.
0: Yes, on the classic bee's knees, which was very popular during Prohibition. Gin drinks in general were super popular. Gin, whiskey, rye, bourbon. Those are kind of the, the the, at least in that period, like the traditional American cocktails. And then please tell me about this little it's like a
1: white porcelain old school clawfoot bathtub, but it's a like cup. <laughs> And then it has a nice little cute black and white straw. Please tell me about this drink.
0: Yeah, so our bathtub fizz, part of why we selected the the bathtub for sort of the cup is because you get that that fizz from the egg whites that are whipped into the cocktail. Mm -hmm. And so it kind of looks like a bubble bath. And, you know, one thing that we can do in our speakeasy that people weren't necessarily doing during Prohibition, but we can sort of make these classic twists on things. So Mm -hmm. we can take spirits that are very nice. 1920s and make them just pop with with the you know we've got our bathtub we also have some cocktails that are served to you in a book with a hidden compartment in it you have to sort of figure that out Uh, so we we do we try to we keep our cocktails as classic as possible but the presentation of them we try to give really fun twists nice thank you
1: So it feels like at this point, especially on the strip, almost every property has some kind of hidden speakeasy or even like Cosmo and the hidden pizza location. There's some kind of secret thing. It feels like speakeasy culture is permeated. So why do you think speakeasies are so popular again?
0: I think speakeasies are fun for people because we have this really romanticized and glamorized vision of the 1920s. And for some reason, like there's some elements that hundred percent that there's a good reason for that. Mm -hmm. Like flappers, uh, the fashion, the style, incredible. Charleston dancing and and jazz music. Like it really is sort of this, this cultural uprising that, that is really easy to get behind and and really exciting. Mm -hmm. And even sort of like things that are also happening in the 1920s that feel tangential to speakeasies, but people really, really appreciate just like the rise of automobiles and the Harlem Renaissance. And there's just so much going on. And so I do think that really draws people to speakeasies. I also think the fact that it's sort of another time period that's very synonymous with cocktails is appealing to people. But I, I as a historian, uh, which means I'm just naturally a buzzkill. <laughs> I'm always thinking about it from the other side. Like, yeah, sure, flappers are super glamorous. It's awesome that that young women are are going against their parents and and shortening their skirts and bobbing their hair and doing all this and and you know, there's interracial speakeasies and there's opportunities for women to go out and you know have fun for the first time and those things are all great, but. Also, everyone who's in a speakeasy is technically breaking the law. <laughs> and they're also probably giving money to organized crime, which is not always the best thing. Uh, I know I worked at the Mob Museum, but, you know, it doesn't mean we're pro-organized crime. Organized crime has a definitely unpleasant, violent, unreasonable side to it that you don't necessarily to be associated with and so i think it it is interesting because it's so easy to to just look at the aesthetics like the aesthetics of the 1920s and prohibition incredible uh the reality of what it was really like not as sexy
1: not at all not as sexy as you know coming in here today and coming down the steps and seeing like the bartenders and their cute outfits but you know you push a button open up this what looks like a painting but the painting is the door and then boom, we're in this very private location. Like I feel very VIP, so I'm excited. But of course, what this comes from, what it stems from is completely different. Is there anything we should have asked you and we didn't?
0: Oh gosh, that's always such a a dangerous question. (laughs) You know, I think talking at least about prohibition in Las Vegas, one of the things that I do think is fun to note is just a couple blocks from where we are, right here on, on uh, Stewart Street, there was a sting operation called Liberty's Last Stand. Um, it was a speakeasy. I, I would use air quotes if, if you could see me. <laughs> but it was actually a sting operation set up by San Francisco prohibition agents uh, to catch local bootleggers. And in one day, they made 108 bootlegger arrests. And the reason I think that that is such a fun story, you know, there's not like a super heavy punchline to it, but what it it illustrates is just how disinterested local law enforcement here was. Like, think about it. We're in Las Vegas. This is pre-airplanes, and Prohibition agents are having to come all the way from San Francisco. Oh, my God. Like, that is a long drive today. I, I It's a real long drive if you're in a government-issued, you know, whatever, Model T 4 <laughs> <laughs> That's just a fun thing to note because I, everyone in Las Vegas knows how we are today, and I think it's easy to, like, assume, yeah, we've probably always been like that, but Concrete historical proof, we've always been like that. We've always wanted to be a little wilder and and a little more permissive of things than the rest of the country. <laughs> oh,
1: Nevada, I love it here. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Claire White, thank you
1: so much for hosting us and your awesome staff, it's been a pleasure.
0: Thank you, we're so happy to have you. Enjoy your cocktails and we hope you'll come back again.
1: Thank you to Claire White, Ashley Miller, Vanessa Thill, and Michaela Jones at the Mob Museum for helping set up a great interview. We appreciate y'all. That's all for today here on CityCast Las Vegas. Call in and tell us your favorite happy hours in town And you might hear yourself on the pod later this week. Leave us a voicemail at 702-514-0719. If you enjoyed the show, tell a friend where you heard about your new favorite speakeasy. Also, rate the show, leave us a review, and subscribe to our morning newsletter. And if you are participating in Dryuary, you'll love tomorrow's episode.
0: Talk soon. I think that the idea of the 1920s is just so glamorous for us. Should I redo that because of my cup? Yeah. I saw your (laughs) look immediately. I was like, (laughs) I was trying to be so good. We're
1: going to take a beverage break. (laughs) Take a real sip. Take a real sip. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you.